Welcome to Wolfie South, the podcast about but not about design. This is episode 74, and we're recording from the, the Syrup of Soot coffee shop in uh, Bloomsbury, uh, not far from the British Museum, which is the destination for our field trip today. I'm Rob Turpin, and also with me is Sean Element. Hello, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we are d- in a bunker deep underground, aren't we? Deep in the secret underground. Drinking flat whites and uh, and and we're going to do our pie review straight away. But it's, yeah. it's not a pie, is it? It's, a, it's not. It's a Portuguese man of war. <laughs> what, do, what they call pasty de nata, isn't it? Uh, Bless you. Officially, but this is this is very much not uh, traditional pastry. No. Well, it's not really good. Wrong with it. Very sweet. It's quite a savoury pastry, isn't it? Mm. Um, not not the best. But not the worst. No, it goes quite well with coffee. You're going to get about a six. Oh, well, so I'm going to get a four from me. Blimey. I do like these custard tops. Just not these custard tops. I like them with a the raspberry on the top. So no. I like them with some tripe. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, been on, what's, on your, what's on your coffee table, Rob? Mm. Uh, what's on my desk this week? Still commissions. Um, although I have managed to find the time to watch Netflix new series Altered Carbon, which is uh, a great bit of um, kind of dystopian cyberpunk literary noir. Looks very expensive, pretty good. Highly recommend it. I think I've got a couple of episodes left. And um, I've also managed to read the second volume of Black Hammer. You got it last week. Yeah, I finished it. Yeah. What did you reckon? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, I like it a lot. I like the kind of mystery that's building into the why they're stuck in the town now. Yeah, I won't 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 do plot spoilers, but it but it ends in a in a in a classic comic book moment. Mm. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it a lot. And working on some new bits and pieces for the Pelagras store. Mm. Uh, plus, we ran a little competition on Instagram, which was good. Yeah. Um, we've got some new prints coming out, haven't we? Yeah, I've just worked on some new versions of uh, the isogrid, isometric buildings print that I've got. So we've got some colour versions of those coming. Which, fingers crossed, will go down quite well. Yeah, that, that'll be available tomorrow, won't it? That's the, so that's the 16th, we'll mm-hmm. be putting some new ones on. Um, been doing, oh, I've been painting some Indian-style let- lettering for this Oh yeah, how's that massive doing? truck. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's, you've been painting it. Yeah, I've been painting it in uh, Procreate oh. because I'm trying to just do a concept sketch for the client. Uh, they want obviously final production visuals straight away, but none of the measurements coming to me make any sense from the manufacturer of this this van they're having converted into one of those you know those giant food trucks that have yes. shelves on them and you know mm. they re- it's a really big one so uh, so yes yeah, 6.8 meters long which uh, they're hoping to get into Glastonbury this year so I've been designing the uh, three-dimensional lettering that just says dosa in different uh, Indian scripts uh, I heard about a really good website called uh, Lettering of India I know I've been like using that. it yeah it's great it's actually I realised this week that it's not very it hasn't been running very long okay. and the lady who so it's only two pages of images okay. at the moment but the lady who runs it is really interesting was she called Puna? Puna yeah, rings the bell mm. Um, she went to uh, University of Reading and studied topography there 
um, and she's been a, she's been working for Google and all sorts of people right. doing Indian scripts. So she's using it as a kind of learning she's resource. Typography or typography? Typography. Oh, sorry, okay. it came out really strange, didn't it? <laughs> Yeah, so she now makes um, hands. She makes fonts, basically, um, but she does tours around Delhi, looking at old street signs mm-hmm. and things like that. So oh, yeah, yeah. Um, talking of designing fonts, do you ever watch Dragon's Den? No. <coughs> there was a woman on Dragon's Den who had this idea of uh, as a, a scheme for teaching children handwriting because it's apparently not taught in schools anymore, and the. the main selling point of this scheme of hers was that she designed uh, a handwriting font okay. that teaches people how to write. Um, and it struck me that she can't have looked online to see if there are any handwriting No, I don't, I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> I see that in. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Uh, yes, yeah, so she, I don't think she'd ever looked online to see if there were any handwriting fonts. I don't mean fonts that look like handwriting, I mean fonts that are designed to teach you how to write handwriting. Because there are dozens. Right. And she thought having this handwriting font using computer was, was valued her business advice, I don't know, two million quid or something. And she didn't even have a copyright on the font. Oh, right. So it was a disaster. Did she not get her funding? No, she did not. <clears throat> Did they say that these were already available? No, they didn't. Because they probably didn't know. But I mean, the rest of her business was terrible anyway. But, yeah. <clears throat> so today we are doing a field trip, and we're going to go into the British Museum. And the idea is to go and find some interesting objects, and then just stand there like a couple of geeks and talk about them. Yeah, can't wait. So uh, we are going to finish up our coffees and and head inside. And um, I think we're going to record the Lord of the Rings segment tomorrow. But you've already had our uh, pie review, mm. and um, I think we should head off. Let's. Right, Mr. T. So we are in the Enlightenment Room. The Enlightenment Room. And the British Museum. And we're standing in front of a load of st- stone... Uh, what are they? St- bricks, almost, aren't they? Yeah, and they, they can take, They've got cuneiform on them. And um, I kind of covered these in the drawings that I did for Ellie Press back in Inktober. Of course, yeah. And, but Rob's brought up a really good point about seeing things in the flesh, especially that they've been impressed or, or pressed into something um, or inscribed is that you really feel a connection between that and the, and the person who did it um, so this brick here is subscribed with the name and titles of Ishmael Dagan, King of Isin um, and it's kind of like a well, it's, sort of, it's on the piss really isn't it? It is a bit, yeah but it's like some kind of space graphics isn't it? it, it the way it looks, it looks like sort of, sort of a symbol that might be on the alien craft. Absolutely. I think that, that's got to be an ins- inspiration, this kind of writing, hasn't it, for Stargate and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So do you think they made the incisions into a, into a clay tablet and then pressed it into there? Yeah, do you think? Must, I think they must So it's multiple printing? Yeah. They definitely look impressed into it. So I wonder if they were carved in, in wood. It doesn't really talk about how they were made, does it? No, but these are baked clay bricks. Yeah. So they've but they've pushed something into it. Pressed into the wet clay and then... Whereas if you look at, like, the Rosetta Stone or, or that one over there, carved. that's carved, isn't it? But yeah. these ones are like a stamp, like you get like in a bookplate. Mm. So I wonder if they are carved. 
I don't know. I got, it looks like it's been pushed. It does. Anyway, yeah, particularly this one, uh, the one you just mentioned. It's, it's deeper on one corner, as if it's been pushed in, you know, slightly off off kilter. What, what I love about this one is that uh, this room is that there's no real uh, guide as to the civilization. You're just looking at random things. Yeah. There's only a few notes. Um, it's actually about the, discover- the rediscovery of the ancient world, and it's just filled with amazing fragments, you know, of of, his- of history. Uh, the cuneiform there, that one up there, is unbelievable. Yeah. It's like a little bird it's really just primitive, stepped it? into mud or whatever. A little kind of uh, triangular, just sort of indentation already in rows. Yeah. Nothing too sophisticated about it. But there again, it's from... Where is it from? Uh, 800 BC. It's more modern than it's that more modern one. Than we were just talking about the fact that a lot of the civilization around this time was about a kind of quest for immortality and being buried with everything. I'm saying that these, you know, we're looking at these things now, four or five thousand years later, and they've managed to achieve their immortality, not necessarily in the way they thought. That could just be a paperweight, couldn't it? It's just a, a block with a hole in it yeah. and some and some shells, but apparently that's some, some kind of language. Yeah. But it doesn't have any annotation. That's what I like about it. Yeah, it's yeah. still it could be completely mysterious. Yeah. Right, well, let's find something else. Cool. Okay, so we're now in room 68, and we asked... Uh, well, Rob, what did you do? Well, I thought it'd be interesting to... Given that it's uh, half-term week and the British Museum is... Evening, I thought it'd be interesting to find the least visited object or gallery in in the museum. So we asked at the help desk, and they ummed and ahed, and then uh, one of the guys remembered that the analytics for the audio tours shows that room 68 is the least visited. So here we are, we're in room 68, which is about money. Which and is quite quite apt, following on from uh, the tablets, which actually recorded financial yeah. uh, and transactions. Yeah. And there's some fascinating stuff in here, but we've we've paused at uh, a particular exhibit, and it's uh, it's a cursed tablet from Rome, Britain, uh, and it's engraved. It's like a little kind of lead, kind of crumpled piece of lead that's engraved with uh, an appeal to Mars and Mercury regarding a theft. Uh, which we decided is a bit like a Roman equivalent of trolling someone on Twitter. So are you going to do the Latin? Yeah. Uh, Deo Marti Mercurio Annulus Aureus De Hospitiolio Erfit et Pedica Ferra Qui Fordem Fecit Deus Inveniat. Fecit? Inveniat. Fecit? <laughs> Does that mean anything? Yeah. Uh, so I thought it said something about you're going to spend a year in hospital, but uh, apparently it doesn't. No, it says something about it's just cursing somebody who stole some stuff from a house. But the one, the one next to it, they think it might be a um, a curse against Emperor Valens, which could very well be uh, a modern troll against uh, Emperor Trump. Trump. Yes. Uh, so uh, these things were pressed in and then thrown onto a, I guess, I guess left in a temple or thrown into a shrine or a a, a, a brook. They like they like to brook, didn't they, yeah. the Romans? So next one, onwards. I think that Wagewood laid on sort of a, a, a white slip onto the dark coloured backgrounds for his his reproductions. But this yeah. this here is two layers of glass, um, glass and then they they carve back the, the brighter colour to reveal 
the the black behind it or Which the dark blue. Which is just insane when you you look at how detailed it is. Yeah, Wedgwood definitely had the right idea. It must have been much easier to do it his way, even though he spent half of his career trying to perfect it, didn't he? But you, you jump from this, which is almost uh, a modern sort of, uh, like a 19th century um, depiction of a man, a man and a woman reclining um, by a tree, and then you jump forward, uh, even just let's say a thousand years, and you look at medieval um, sculpture and the style that they drew people in was was totally backwards yeah. compared to this. Well, we were just discussing how it's, it's inconceivable that all that information and knowledge could have been lost after the kind of classical era and not rediscovered until the Renaissance. Well, we went to go and have a look at the Japanese stuff because we love all that, but it's shut. So we come next to it and there's a very dark and subdued uh, room with prints in it. Uh, I guess subdued to stop the prints fading. So we've come to the uh, uh, bit with British satire, so old comics really. Yeah. Um, and what if you've got a lot of stuff was printed onto, you know, the classic Toby jug, there's a there's a monkey here dressed as Napoleon. Um, and I guess these were everyday objects that carried satire on them. What what objects would you have now that would have that kind of thing? I was just trying to think. There really isn't because they're almost they almost look like modern commemorative stuff. That, you know, it gets printed when there's a new king or a duke yeah. or a royal on the wedding. back of the Daily Mail. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, but there isn't there isn't anything associated with satire produced in that way. No. Yeah, Could you it? maybe like laps, laptop stickers or yeah. t-shirts? T-shirts. t-shirts yeah, t-shirts. With, uh, Slogans, definitely, things. definitely. But they, these things are, you know, long gone now. You don't get mugs with, you don't get people anti-Trump mugs or, sa- or sandwich wrappers with slogans on them. Yeah. I, I say bring back politics to lunchtime and uh, absolutely bring back luncheon vouchers with rude messages on. <laughs> <laughs> Just bring back luncheon vouchers. <laughs> so we're now standing in front of a couple of mugs which are celebrating the, well, not celebrating. They're revolted by the beheading of. Uh, Louis the 16th was it yeah yes and um, so imagine drinking your morning coffee out of a mug of um, I don't know the assassination of John Kennedy well really I think the one on the left is is celebrating and the one on the right is uh, exhibiting revulsion for the execution of Louis the 16th um, but yeah they are quite grisly you know there's a guillotine and a, a bucket and a beheaded king and, and then and this one there's blood everywhere yeah but it's it's uh, it's it's on a, a mug that's kind of yellowed in, in, in age but it's a very clear photo, almost photographic reproduction of the uh, of the image isn't it yeah so it must have been how was that produced did they have sort of transfer yeah they were talking about there about transfer before? talking of guillotines I read um that the last public guillotining in France was in 1939 and Christopher Lee was present at it. I don't know why. Was Tom Baker there? <laughs> but, um... No, that would be a cushion. Yeah. He was involved in the special services, was he? What, the kind of uh, forerunner of the SAS type? Was he? I don't know. I don't know. No. But, um... Yeah, he, he's one of those characters who seems to pop up... <laughs> Throughout history, like a time traveller. <laughs> Zelig. Yeah. So we're now in room 40, which is the uh, Sutton Hoo burial. Um, and they've got a new glass box there, which wasn't here last time, uh, containing a lot of the hoard. 
and uh, it is astonishing how much stuff they've got and how little of the original helmet there is yeah there's a beautiful uh, replica of the helmet of how it would have looked but the, the actual helmet itself is quite limited it's you know nose lips eyebrows and then just kind of patches of the, the rest of the helmet but you know very little um, but kind of walking through all the early British galleries into the Anglo-Saxon stuff the, the detail and ephemera is quite astonishing yeah we can definitely see where people come to get inspiration for drawing all the little uh, little gnarly bits on yeah and uh, if you don't you should <laughs> if you're one of these people one of these artists or illustrators that's working in fantasy art or uh, character design for role playing games or tabletop games and you need to come to places like this because the, the detail in the everyday objects is just astonishing. And all the kind of little ephemera of the everyday that you forget about, but you know, if you're drawing a character, it's great to include that stuff to, to add sort of depth and, and realism to a character. Yeah, if you, for example, take the sword and then look at the scabbard, like the boss on the bottom of the, yeah. uh, of the pommel, the detail in there of the of the gold work is exquisite. Mm. I mean, this guy here could have only been a king. Um, it is absolutely astonishing. We were just saying how good it is to go to Sutton Hoo, uh, to the actual uh, visitor centre there, but come to uh, the British Museum and look at the actual artefacts because it is astonishing. The intricacy of the carving is is just incredible. And that stand there, that could be like a Roman sort of, uh, what do you call yeah, it, like eagle. Standard. Yeah, Not that you can see that on a podcast, so that's not very interesting. Yeah, really but what were you talking about, Rob? Was, you were talking about, uh, yeah, not only inspiration, but also, oh, look, here's some more of those red um, glass things. Yeah. But also the fact that, um, <clears throat> that this kind of, the art con- did continue through different civilizations. It's just, it sort of ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Uh, uh, if you look at, say, Britain going from the Celts to the Romans and then the Anglo-Saxons, they, they all had really strong art forms. Um, I think part of, part of that is just the way we view it, though, isn't it? Because we kind of lump things together into, you know, this is Bronze Age, so this is kind of what that is. But, you know, the Bronze Age spanned 2,000 years, so it will have ebbed and flowed within that. And, you know, regionally, um, you know, as these kind of primitive Bronze Age settlements kind of ebbed and flowed and just you know there's, I, I, there's kind of a vague line that, that runs through everything but you know breaks off and splinters just beautiful work there's an incredible whetstone for sharpening knives and it's got an incredible carved set of faces at the top of it and they're really in these kind of glass display cabinets, they're kind of all lit from above, and it's really quite a haunting little figure. It's mounted by a huge stag. So we're now in uh, 40 or 41, and we're standing in front of the Lewis chest set. Uh, so this is a chest set found on the Isle of Lewis in 18 something. Um, 
and it's remarkable. It's carved out of walrus ivory in really beautifully stylized figures. It's all the kind of main pieces of these slightly naive but really detailed squat figures. And all the, the pawns are all sort of uh, just stylized chips. They look a little bit like uh, sort of chop the end off a cucumber. Elm or a, a First World War missile. Yeah. Um, the shell. The characters themselves are wonderful. A really beautiful style. They, um, yeah, and Nog in the Nog sprung to mind when I when I see them. This the the so art for our, style. So our, for our overseas listeners and people slightly younger than yourself, John, Nog in the Nog. <laughs> well, Nog in the Nog was a. Uh, uh, program that was on the BBC in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s, and the clangers came from Nog in the Nog. Yeah, the Moon Mouse oh, falls out of space, okay. and uh, and that was the inspiration for uh, was Peter Furman and Oliver oh yeah, Postgate. Oliver Postgate. Well done, uh, and I think he took direct inspiration from the uh, from these, and you can tell that he he obviously he must have come here and and, and taken uh, photographs or or drawn live from them. But there's something about light in there, and I guess when you're playing these under candlelight, that accentuates the, mm. the depth of the carving. Yeah, particularly that kind of flickering candlelight that casts shadows and make them, you know, bring them to life. Yeah. I think I was reading a, a QI thing recently about medieval chess, that, they, that all the pawns had sort of special abilities they gave them, but I don't think they could have done here because they're all the same shape. Yeah. But yeah. there are some other strangely shaped uh, pawns that are slightly flattened on the top, mm. and also little... Discs. Like talking about this, the style of the characters, I'd love to see them revived in a kind of a modern computer game. You know, instead of this kind of really realistic style, to kind of have something with this amount of character would just be wonderful. Yeah. So, game designers, get yourself down to the British Museum, look at the Lewis chess set, and uh, crack on. Yeah, it's the it's the most popular, uh, one of the most popular exhibits here apparently and we are yeah we are hemmed in we are <laughs> so we'll leave it there for now okay so we're now at some uh, in front of some medieval floor tiles which sounds very very boring but actually uh, I, I, I love the contrast of the terracotta and the yellow together um, but underneath that they've got this thing called the, an acoustic pot which reminds me of when I was talking about um, the Wells Cathedral and the uh, and shouting for pretending to be God. Yes. Um, but these things were put in walls, and that was, there we are. I wasn't making it up. I was wondering whether I was, but they put them in the walls, and it would it was acted like a speaker. So it's like a it's like a flattened earthware pot, and that would then boost the sound of the monks singing. Yeah. Which is astonishing, isn't it? It is really incredible, and it just shows that technology hasn't changed that much because you can get these kind of passive speakers for your iPhones, can't you? Which is just like a stand with an acoustic shape to it. Really? Which, yeah, which boosts the sound oh, of your right. speaker. I don't know. But sometimes if I'm in the workshop, I'll put my iPhone playing music in one of Steph's vases, yeah. and it does exactly the same thing. <laughs> so we've got these tiles here, which, um, and then they've got an alphabet underneath there, which yeah. they obviously used for creating prayers and all sorts of yeah, inscriptions. Shirts. They are literally look like um, typesetting uh, individual bits of font. Anyway. Onwards, beautiful it's beer time. So we're now in the Red Lion, having walked down Lamb Conduit Street into the mouth of the lion, the wrong way. <laughs> so we were hoping to go to the Lamb, which is a classic old-fashioned uh, Victorian pub. But we've ended up in a classic Victorian pub. 
that serves absolutely no food whatsoever, apart from crisps, which are perfect for recording. <laughs> they also serve a, a fantastic pint of black sheep ale, uh, which is uh, a good thing to find in central Liverpool. So we found, um, we uh, left the museum, uh, we tried to go to the uh, modern section but it was closed for some reason which is a real shame because I think the arts and crafts rooms in there are really fascinating in terms of the fact that the, the people were actually walking around museums um, and using that as inspiration for creating the art. That was probably the first time they'd ever been doing that. I don't know, were there museums in uh, in ancient Greece that had Mesopotamian clay tablets. Well that's kind of what we were touching on when we were looking around the museum wasn't it that you know these artefacts that we've got in museums now from two and a half thousand years ago have, have kind of drifted in and out of fashion but at some point they must have been looked upon as both you know kind of rubbish, ancient rubbish and and then, you know, as, as ancient treasures, multiple times throughout history, in the two and a half thousand years since they were created, yeah. before they were kind of really struck upon as, as art objects in the, the light age. We were also talking about whether, uh, you know, controlling regimes controlled art in, in ancient civilization generally. So, for example, you go into um, Roman culture, there's no uh, sub-layer of any kind of um, other cultures that were existing at the same time. Roman punk art. (laughs) Well, no, no, there was Etruscan, wasn't there? And that got wiped. Roman punk art. Yeah, no. But that was like that. That's what Rome was built upon, and then yeah. there was this kind of like raising to the ground of that culture. And um, similarly, at the end of the Roman uh, Empire, there was um, the Christ- Christianity came out, and that was, that that expressed itself in a number of secret symbols. The fish was a secret symbol, wasn't it? Um, so it's very hard for other cultures in in history to show themselves in art because they were often crushed. So we were like, yeah, we were talking about what, what about all the, the cracks between, you know, the interesting thing is the cracks between the pages. Niche cultures within a greater culture. Yeah, because there's absolutely no way, if you were a non-Aztec living in Aztec, Mexico, and uh, you wanted to express yourself, I don't think you were going to get very far. Yeah, in the same way that now we get, you know, yarn bombs. Uh, doing stuff was there you know were there similar little uh, kind of craft cults within the Aztec Empire yeah yeah I guess so well, yeah, so we missed that one out. We went to the Mexican room to look at some heads being locked off. Yeah, um, good stuff. And some very angular, strange, bird-like human creatures. Yeah, remarkably. Favoured by Eric von Daniken. Yeah. So I loved those books as a kid. Yeah. I thought I they were... I haven't read them. I think uh, I kind of know what they were. Yeah. So, so, what was it? Something of the Gods. Ark? Ark of the Gods, was it? Nectar? No, I don't know. I've got anything else to say about... I would say just get yourself into a museum. Yeah, I think it's it's just remarkable how much richness of culture you can find in a museum. You know, the British Museum, you know, specifically, but any other of the kind of big museums, there's just such a wealth of stuff. You know, we've walked around for two or three hours and, you know, we didn't go in half the galleries and some galleries were just kind of tossed up through looking at barely anything. You know, there's just such a wealth of 
culture out there. Yeah, we barely touch upon in our everyday lives. There isn't, isn't kind of referenced in, in modern Western culture. But you need to get yourself to a museum and suck it all up. Pretty good for you. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, cool. we'll leave it there, shall we? Yeah. All right. So, episode 74, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, cool. Is it? Good is that oh. Yeah. Looks like it might snow here. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Dear. Uh, yes, Lord of the Rings. Um, A shortcut to Mushrooms, yeah, chapter John. Four. The best, is this the best chapter title of the whole book? Shortcut to mushrooms. I don't know. I can't think about Sounds the Sounds like my 17-year-old self. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you were dabbling in? Amongst other things. Oh, were you just a fan of the set? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what did you what did you make of this, uh, this chapter? Well, it's the one I really remember from being a kid and reading it. Uh, and also the radio um, program because it's where okay. Frodo gets a good thrashing, and we see, um, well, where we we heard that he got a good thrashing as a kid. Yes. So it, it kind of it's the last it's the last gasp of of Shire life, isn't it? Um, this chapter it, it is. They're very much sort of clinging on to that idyllic way of life. Definitely aren't they? the um, bucolic uh, agricultural lifestyle uh, is is ramped up to to, uh, to number eleven. Hmm. Uh, in, including uh, food that's like uh, bacon and eggs, school food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're um, pretty much just public school boys, aren't they? The hobbits. They are absolutely. There's there's kind of little other than that in this uh, chapter, is there? Really, there's hints of uh, you know the the tension of the of being hunted by these black riders, but the vast majority of the chapter is about kind of. Food and the Shire. Yeah, it's just lay, laying on the uh, the icing of, of of leaving a comfortable life, isn't it? And starting on something. Mm. But it's always Sam who uh, makes the most poignant speeches, and he surprises Frodo by acting very maturely and and basically just giving himself up for whatever's going to happen. Um, much like yeah, I guess uh, Tolkien's, a- you know, friends and 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 youth did in the yes. First World War. Um, just yeah, laid down, you know, it was just uh, unquestionable sacrifice. Um, but that, that speech from Sam kind of is also a, like a precursor to his his sort of un his rock solid loyalty to uh, Frodo as well, isn't it? That survives the length of their adventure. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and we've got the great farmer Maggot, who is the wi- one of the wisest hobbits. That you could meet. It's a shame he didn't go with them. Could have got them out a lot, of, mm. a lot, a lot of trouble. Uh, there's no mention yep. of Rosie here. I think it doesn't. Sam end up marrying Rosie Maggot, the daughter. Uh, oh, is that Rosie Maggot? So. Maybe. In the film, it makes her out to be a local barmaid that he's already flirting with. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I'm. I'm still because I haven't read the book for a while and I haven't been listening to the the audio book. I'm still very much like, the majority of my memory of it is from my recent rewatching of the film so there's quite a lot of confusion in my head about what happened where and what didn't really happen and stuff. so if we're leaving behind the shire i think we should mention you know we've we've spoken about the the really strong writing by uh, tolkien of the local countryside here uh, and it continues in this chapter doesn't it um, and there's lots of 
sort of silhouettes of black horses on the on the horizon, but lots of valleys and rivers and natural sort of English like style landscapes that are very familiar to, familiar to all the reader, which can only sort of accentuate the later uh, chapter the chapters that are going to follow in this book. That's it. I mean, I wonder if he knew writing these these kind of very idyllic chapters that he was going to contrast them quite so much with the the horror that was to come. Yeah, because the Hobbit doesn't the Hobbit stays stays quite. I mean, it does get rocky and snowy, but it doesn't become so horrific as as uh, as the later books. No, it kind of sticks more to sort of known lands as well, doesn't it? Uh, Yeah, so it's it is. This is the last of the sort of of the fun bits. <laughs> Although, I mean, you know, as in the, the lighthearted nature of the, the hobbits, I think we, we plunge into yeah. pretty much um, in the next couple of cha- chapters, it gets quite dark. Um, yes. Yeah, so in my memory of it, I don't know how accurate this is, but my memory of it is it, everything's reasonably idyllic until Brie. But I think, <clears throat> I think that's more based on the films. I think, I think it probably goes awry earlier, doesn't it? Because they go through the old forest and Tom Bombadil. Yeah, we've got Bomb- before they Bombadil get to before. It's almost an entire book before Brie, which, you know, uh-huh, all, yeah. all, the, all the remakings of the film and everything just completely bypasses. Well, that's another thing about the, there's no sense of the scale of the Shire. You know, you talked about it being however many leagues across. And, and just in this chapter, they, um, you know, they're on a, an 18 mile hike. Mm. In one day. And to mushrooms. Now, we're mm. quite... Uh, the British are quite scared of mushrooms, aren't they? They're, they're not They're not like the French, where you can pick... Yeah, we're not a nation yeah, of foragers, are we? Or, um, I think the Polish and uh, certainly the Italians know how to... Uh, know, generally know how to pick mushrooms. We're, yeah, we might know our onions. We don't no, know our we're, mushrooms. We're quite, quite scared of them. Um, but... These are, I'm guessing, field mushrooms that we've got here that he's growing in his fields. I guess so. I mean, you don't know. I don't know. He could be um, conjuring upon manner of exotic yeah. mushroom. I think he's got some shiitake in there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Oyster mushrooms. I think the last sentence of the uh, of the chapter is um, really funny. It just says, uh, suddenly Frodo laughed. From the covered basket he held, the scent of mushrooms was rising. Makes them sound quite ominous, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> it does a bit. I remember in early Dungeons and Dragons, one of your first things you come across is a giant fungus. Yeah, or it- some slime or something. Yeah. Um, so you've got to be careful of those mushrooms. Yeah, listen up, listeners. <laughs> Pay heed. And word, uh, have you got word of the week? No, I f- there is one word that I had to look up. Warreting. Mm-hmm. Oh, go on. So it what says Mrs. That? Maggot will I be warreting with the night getting thick, and I, I think it's a dialect oh. for worrying. Yeah, worrying. But it yeah. is just—it's very general. It's—it's uh, it's common in America, uh, England, Ireland, um, to warret. Um, I looked it up, and it means uh, yeah to pester someone with words. Sounds very Thomas Hardy. Yeah. Um, no, I, I had no words of the week. The only other thing I picked up from this chapter was um, there were hints at um, Frodo's sort of Bilbo-like irascibility. He kind of snaps at someone when he's he's thinking, and like he snaps at Pippin. 
when that uh, <clears throat> that was kind of um, the legacy of the ring on Bilbo, and it certainly becomes more prominent as the as the book goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, there's definitely a brooding sense to his personality that you don't see for quite a, mm. a, a long time. You know, I think once he leaves the Shire, he becomes as innocent as the others, pretty much, uh, all the way up to Rivendell. Yeah. Um, but yeah, here he's 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 obviously worried about something and he's completely confused by the advice that he has or hasn't been given by the annoying elves. Yeah. Well, he's also, you know, still doubting whether or not he should um, take Sam on the journey, isn't he? And he also hints that um, Pippin definitely shouldn't leave the Shire yeah. with him. <clears throat> Although that obviously doesn't come to pass. There's a nice little chapter, though. It is. The, um, the elves fill their bottles with a clear drink, pale golden in colour. Do you think they really like them? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, of course, if elves eat flowers, then, you know, their mixture yeah, is going to... Uh, elderflowers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I wonder if there's a, a Lord of the Rings cookbook. <laughs> I know there's a Sopranos one. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to get that many recipes, are you, in this? Silence of the Lambs cookbook? Is there? <laughs> there must be. There must be. Of recipes with Chianti. So, what's our what's our next chapter, John? Uh, the, the what's next for next week, week? is uh, a a conspiracy unmasked. So, uh, so yeah, tune back, dear reader, next week for another exciting <laughs> episode of two blokes faffing around. That's, that's good. You almost sounded like a 1950s yeah. serial announcer. Then. What, like um, Sunny Jim? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, right, Phil. Yeah, good to talk to you. I'll speak to you soon. Bye.